that what you were just encouraged toward is possible. How many of you really know in your heart of hearts that God will take all the stuff of life, sometimes the stuff that happens because we make mistakes and we fail and we live with brokenness, uh, and he is able to make something dramatically beautiful from it. I hope you believe that with all of your hearts. You know, we're doing this story um, campaign. If you're new with us, this, this book is a chronological understanding of Scripture, and it describes the upper story, the, 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 the story that God is painting, if you would, from beginning to the end, from Adam and Eve to the end of Revelation. Um, but it also describes the lower story, and that's the story of people like you and me who <laughs> mess up all the time. Even the greats, like King David. You know, it was messy. But God used such people to do profoundly beautiful things so that his story ultimately might be accomplished. He takes our lower stories and he creates something beautiful from them that his will is done. You know, just as we step into that relationship with God through Christ, just as we come to that place where we recognize, you know what, it's all about Jesus and, Lord, take my life and use my life and bring from this life that I offer to you with all of its warts. Um, as we do that, Jesus just takes us and he said, all right, let's run together. Let's make a difference in this world. I hope you're in. I hope that's you. I hope it's your heart's desire to be caught up in the things of God and to be accomplishing the things of God uh, as he chooses. You know, as we um, enter into uh, uh, this whole story campaign, I told you we, we'll be learning God's story. And I've, I've spoken to that reality. This isn't primarily our story. It's, it's God and what God is doing. He's God. He's got an intention, he's got a purpose, he's got a plan. He's taking us from Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden until Revelation. The story will unfold as he chooses. I hope you're not only getting to know the story. It starts with Abraham and Sarah and uh, their children and their children's children and their children's children. It, it's, it, it's, it's them, that family going down to Egypt and being rescued from Pharaoh by Moses and him taking them to the promised land and they enter in and they become a nation. It's about the, 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 the season of the judges when God spoke and, and ruled through the judges. Then we come to the, to the time of the kings, and we're there now. It's a simple story when you think of it. We had King Saul and King David and King Solomon. Each of them reigned for about 40 years, 100 years, 120 years in total. Um, I hope not only are you learning the story, but you're learning about the God of the story. Man, I want you to get the chronology. I want you to know how the, the prophets fit into the various kings' experiences. I want you to learn how the Psalms fit in. But I, most of all, I want you to know about the God of the story. What are you learning about him? I hope first and foremost you're learning that he's a God of love who created us to love us and so that we could love him. I hope you're learning that he's a God of love who put a plan in place after we fell away from him by sin and were alienated from him. He put a plan in place that would get us back into relationship with him because he loved us. That's a God of love. I hope you're learning because of the messiness of the story that we all live. He's also a God of mercy and of forgiveness, God of grace. You know, when you get to know the God 
who, is, who has created the story and will continue to, you end up amazed at who he is. This is an amazing God. And it is that knowledge which leads us, leads us to worship him, to love him, to serve him. Well, having said that, let's move into the next part of the story. Chapter 14, <clears throat> again, for newer folks, a lot of our life, I think all of our life groups are studying this chapter and discussing it in the week prior to me speaking about it. So a lot of you know the content here. And if you aren't in a life group, uh, get a book and read along with us. Uh, we can make them available to you. Well, we're at the point in the story now where Solomon's reign has come to an end. And if you'll remember from last week, it ended badly. It really did. Um, Solomon was warned by God not to marry the women from the foreign nations because they would influence his heart away from the Lord. And in the end, that's exactly what happened. He didn't take God's warning seriously. Um, and he ended up worshiping foreign gods. The very thing God had said from the very beginning, do not do. Moses was leading the people in and he said to them before they entered the promised lands, don't intermarry and don't worship those gods. And all the way through the story, we're hearing about how the people of Israel keep on doing it. It's remarkable. But anyway, Solomon's reign has ended badly in that way. And essentially, God said to him, if you do worship those idols, you'll lose the land and the temple will be destroyed, etc. Um, and over the next three chapters, we're going to see that actually happen. That's what goes on. Um, Solomon's uh, son, Rehoboam, is to succeed him as king. And uh, he's one of the two main players in this chapter. But the people of Israel, when that time comes, are not particularly happy. They have been taxed to the hilt by Solomon so that he can do all that he wants to do. Anybody relate to that? They're really unhappy. And also they've been uh, uh, required to do forced labor. And they're not happy about that. So they come along to Rehoboam before he is crowned and said, listen, we are not happy and here's why and we want you to reduce those demands on us before we will make you king and follow you faithfully. The other prime player in this story is Jeroboam. Funny names, I know. Very often they just took a name and added Boam to it. So if I was one of those people, I would be Chris Little Boam, you know? Stick that on the end of your name, see how it sounds. But Jeroboam is told by the prophet of God that he's going to be the king of Israel and what became the northern kingdom. And uh, he's part of Saul's administration. But even before Saul finishes, um, he leads a, a premature action and, and, and uh, Solomon um, you know, counters that. And, and Jeroboam has to flee to Egypt because he's acted unfaithfully. And what happens, what unfolds in this context is Jeroboam is in Egypt and, and, and Rehoboam is ready to take the throne and he, he encounters the people of Israel with their complaints and their concerns. And I want to read that story to you now. So we're going to read from um, 1 Kings 12, verses, verses 1 to 15, page 193 in the story. So if you have it, take it out and read it along with me. Jeroboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had gone there to make him king. When Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard this, he was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon. He returned from Egypt. Am I reading in the right passage? No, I'm not. Am I? I am. Oh, excellent. From Egypt. So they sent for Jeroboam, and he and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam and said to him, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now listen, the, uh, lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. 
We will serve you. Rehoboam answered, go away for three days and then come back to me. So the people went away. He wanted time to think. He didn't know quite what to do. Then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. How would you advise me to answer these people, he asked. They replied, if today you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. But Rehoboam rejected the advice of the elders and gave uh, the elders gave him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. Always be careful whose advice you take, okay? Say that right now. He asked them, what is your advice? How should we answer these people who say to me, lighten the yoke your father put on us? The young men who had grown up with him replied, these people have said to you, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. Now tell them, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. Three days later, Jeroboam and all the people returned to Rehoboam, and as the king had said, come back to me in three days. The king answered the people harshly, rejecting the advice given him by the elders. He followed the advice of the young man and said, My father made your yoke heavy. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for this turn of events was from the Lord to fulfill the word of the Lord, the word the Lord had spoken to Jeroboam, son of Nebat, through Ahijah, the Shilonite. You know, that probably wasn't the best thing for the king to do, was it? I mean, he's, he's put in a position where he can garner the favor of the people, where he can take a step of grace, where he as the king of Israel can reflect the reality of God's love and God's goodness to his people, which is the primary role of that king, and he doesn't do it. And the result of this whole encounter becomes really tragic. Let me continue on. Uh, page 194, uh, chapter 12, verses 16 and following. When all Israel saw the king refused to listen to them, they answered the king, what share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's son? To your tents, Israel, look after your own house, David. So the Israelites went home. But as for the Israelites who were living in the towns of Judah, Rehoboam still ruled over them. King Rehoboam sent out a, a Adoniram, who was in charge of forced labor, but all Israel, this is the people north, stoned him to death. King Rehoboam, however, managed to get into his chariot and escape to Jerusalem, so Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. When all the Israelites heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. Only the tribe of Judah remained loyal to the house of David. See, what happens here is a tragedy. What happens here is that, that, that God's people are divided. There's a rebellion against the king that's in the line of succession of David and Solomon and so forth. And uh, the, the, the ten tribes of, of Israel, the northern kingdom it's called, just say, we're not going to follow you, King Rehoboam. We don't care if you're of the house of David. We have nothing to do with you from this point forward. And Jeroboam becomes king and he rules from Samaria. Rehoboam remains king, ruling from Jerusalem, but in the end rules over the tribe of Judah and Benjamin, just those two. And we, what we have in this instance is called the divided kingdom. God's people, ten tribes in the south, in the north, two tribes in the south, they're greatly weakened. 
As I said last week, Solomon was the peak of Israel's glory and fame and power, and from this point forward, it starts to decline just as God said it would. Um, and they're weakened particularly in Judah because there are only two tribes. It's a disaster in many ways because uh, of what, what happened. Now, what do we learn from this? I mean, we're looking at the story time and again, and we're saying, God, give to us an understanding of what you want us to know in this day for our lower story experience. And I want to start by this. The one thing that we can learn that is clear and profoundly taught in this, in this uh, chapter is that God is a sovereign God. He is loving. He is merciful. He is forgiving. He is good, Right? But he's also a sovereign God. You see, from beginning to end, the purposes of God, the upper story is unfolding, and it will not be thwarted by the fallibility and the failings of human beings. And it doesn't matter whether that's Saul or David or Solomon. It doesn't matter whether it's Rehoboam or, or Jeroboam. God's purposes carry on. And it's, it's made clear in this instance. You know, you might look at this story and say, why did that happen? You know, what, what caused this? And you can look at Rehoboam and his foolishness and listening to a bunch of younger men as opposed to the elders. You hear that, guys, by the way? You know, just, uh, I'm 60 in a few months. And... But you can look at Rehoboam and say it was his fault. But the reality is you've got to go back a generation and you've got to look at Solomon who did not heed the warning of God to not worship alternate gods, other idols. And you recognize at that point that God said, if you do your nation will start to falter and your throne will be taken from you and your, your descendants. And here's the first step toward bad things happening for the people of God. You know, I, I want to take you to page 195 of the story. Uh, it's 1 Kings 12, 24, and I want you to listen. Um, I want you to listen to what is said here. Um, it's in the context of Rehoboam being ready to go and do battle with Jeroboam. He's not willing to give up the ten tribes. He's going to muster his army. He's going to defeat Jeroboam and his army, and he's going to be the king over the whole thing. This is what God says. This is what the Lord says. Do not go up to fight against your brothers, the Israelites. That's what the northern kingdom is now called. Go home, every one of you. I want you to note it. Look at it. For this is my doing. So they obeyed the word of the Lord and went home again as the Lord had ordered. What God says here and in other instances is, you know, the purposes that I design will come to be. You might blame Rehoboam. You might blame uh, Solomon. But in the end of the day, what has happened is because I choose it. Because I choose it. Because he's a sovereign God. I, I want us to recognize that sometimes we think we're in charge. You ever think that? Well, I'm in charge of my life. I make the decisions that I make. I, I, I am the, the master of my own destiny, if you will. I'm going to be able to determine my own course, but we've got to get this right, that the one who's in charge is not us. It is God. And the way he leads and the choices he makes for us is what ultimately plays out in our lives. This is humbling but true. God is a sovereign God. Do you know that to be true in your experience? Lesson number one. Lesson number two, I want us to look at what Jeroboam did in the northern kingdom, now uh, named Israel, Judah to the south. Page 196. And here's Jeroboam being a power-hungry, 
politically minded king, but not one of godliness. So page 196. Jeroboam thought to himself, the kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David. He's worried about his own rule over these ten tribes. If these people go, go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiance to their lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me in return to King Rehoboam. So you got the context? He thinks if his people go regularly to Jerusalem to worship God, ultimately their allegiance will go to another king, Rehoboam. After seeking advice, and I don't know who he talked to, but once again, it's not great. <laughs> After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. He said to the people, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. One he set up in Bethel, the other in Dan, one in the northern part of the northern kingdom, one in the southern part of the northern kingdom. And this thing became a sin. The people came to worship the one at Bethel, Bethel and went as far as Dan to worship the other. He sets up shrines. He sets up pagan festivals. He sets up the golden calves that his people will worship them, and they will not worship the one true God. What do we learn from that? I want to tell you something profound something incredibly important for us, and it is this. This King Jeroboam would have known the history of God's people. He would have known about Moses, and he would have known about Mount Sinai, and he would have known about the one golden calf that the people used to be unfaithful before God. And in spite of him knowing how wrong that was in the mind of God and how contrary it was to the word of God, he did the exact, exact opposite of what com God commanded him to do. And he built not one, but two golden calves, and he ordered his people to worship them. There is absolutely no question that that man knew that what he was doing was wrong in the eyes of God. Here's my question for you, one of them today. I want to know, do you know what your golden calf is? Do you know what it is that you are tempted to worship as opposed to worshiping God? Do you know what it is, to, do you know what it is that you need to refuse to bow down to this week? and not worship? What is it that will tempt you to love it more than you actually love God? What is that thing that you will give priority to more than Yahweh? What is it that you will give your heart to more than you have given your heart to the Lord? What will you give your time to? What will you give your attention to? What is that thing that is contrary to what God has spoken, but which you will do anyway? You see, an idol is anything we put above God, anything we put above God in our lives. Last week, I talked a little bit about this. I talked about how the idols of our culture, I think, are money, material things, and sexuality. That's very, very obvious to me. But I can tell you, an idol can be anything in our lives. When I was in uh, uh, high school, our youth leader, he wasn't an employee, but he volunteered, and he was a great guy, he absolutely loved the NFL. Why am I looking at Jeff when I say that? I don't know, but it worked, didn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Conviction. <laughs> 
but he loved the NFL. He was crazy about the NFL. He lived and he breathed the NFL until he realized he loved the NFL too much. And he actually came to a point in his life and he said, this is way too important to me. It has become an idol in my, my life and I need to stop watching the NFL. Now, I wasn't in a position really to say to him, you're nuts or not. If that was the conviction God brought into his life, that's the conviction that God brought. And out of faithfulness and obedience, he stepped away from something he loved too much to turn his heart back again to the living God and his relationship with Christ. It can be anything. I've told you before, and I'm going to say it again, my potential idol is food. <laughs> and I make fun, but it's actually true. Do you know that, that Paul says in Philippians that their stomach is their God, speaking of people? otherwise. I know I can eat in an ungodly way. I know that I have a natural tendency, seem to be wired into my being, to eat in a way that will harm the temple of God, and my God has convicted me about that more times than I can tell you. I know that one of the things that, for whatever reason it, 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 it is, you know, I'm not even sure about that, but I am tempted to bow before the God of food as opposed to bowing before the God of heaven turning away from him, turning away from his commands, clearly taught in scripture about gluttony and so forth, turning away from the Lord and his goodness and in his grace and in his love for me and literally bowing to the God of food which becomes way too important to me and which I can't say no to sometimes. Sometimes my God is my stomach. And I don't say that with pride. That's part of my human condition. Not that food is bad. And it's not that the NFL is bad. <laughs> it is a matter, though, of what becomes so important to us. It takes precedence over our God. Now, I'm going to strike this point home a little bit. I'm glad you're sitting down. <clears throat> there are a couple of things that, as I look at our community, well, one in particular, that I see as a potential God for this community. You know what it is? Work. There are a lot of people in this church, in this community, who work really, really hard. Let me say this, work is a good thing. It is a gift of God to us. It can bless our lives. It can help build the kingdom. There are so many benefits to the reality of work, but I want to tell you when work becomes too important to us, when we find our meaning and a purpose in it, when we put it before the worship of God or of serving God or whatever, if we come to love it and we live for it, it can easily become a God. And the potential is that instead of bowing to the God of heaven and living for him alone and loving him and focusing on him and giving him our life, we bow to the God of work and we live for it. And the Bible says don't do it. Don't, don't love anything more than your God. Don't prioritize anything more than the God of heaven. And I'm going to say something here that might uh, shock some of you, but you know another God that can form in our lives is the God of family. You say, oh, come on, Chris. Aren't we supposed to love our families? Of course we're to love our families, but we are not to allow them to become our God. How do you know that's true, Chris? Well, let me tell you, the Bible is absolutely clear that nothing is to, become, to come before our love for and our commitment to the Lord himself, Jesus Christ. Nothing. Not our spouses, not our children, not our grandchildren. I want to read to you Matthew chapter 10, 37, if you don't believe me. And I want to quote Jesus, our Lord, the living God, 
who spoke the truth of God in this world. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now, you don't get much more clear than that when you start to think about these things. People, we are to love our families, and we are to be good to them, and we are to prioritize them, and we are to celebrate them, but we are not to love them and prioritize them and celebrate them above our love for God. Nothing can come before him. You see, what Jesus demands of us is everything. Everything. We have to give him our lives. We have to yield our all to him as the living God and worship him alone. I recognize I'm talking about serious stuff here because if you were to take this seriously, if you haven't previously, it will change your life. But we need to decide if we are going to be the people who will be faithful to God and who will worship Him alone and love Him alone and above all other things and to live our lives for Him with passion and with conviction, to put Him and His purposes above all else or not. We have to be people who are going to be like Jeroboam or not. Who he who defied the will of God so clearly taught in Scripture, who so clearly did what was contrary to God's will. There's a hush over us today, isn't there? Because there's a seriousness in what I'm saying. I'm here to ask you, do you love God more than anything in your life or anyone? If there's something that comes into your mind and into your heart that might compete with God, I'm telling you right now that's a potential idol in your life. And the Lord of heaven and earth throughout this whole story comes to us and he says, set it aside. Reject it as a God in your life that you might worship me and me alone. Have you ever fully committed your life to Christ? Fully, unreservedly said, Lord Jesus, I am yours. You are my priority. You are my love. Whatever you call me to do, I will do. Wherever you call me to go, I will go. There is nothing that will stand in the way of me living for you. I will take your word and I will live in obedience to it, contrary to what Jeroboam did. My heart will be fully devoted to you like King David's heart was fully devoted to God. I will, have you ever made that decision to reject all the idols of the world so that you might love only him? This passage, these passages, implores us to live faithfully before the Lord. So number one, we recognize that this God of ours is a sovereign God. He's in charge. He is the, the living God of heaven and earth. Number two, we recognize that he calls us to complete faithfulness and obedience before him. And lesson number three that emerges from the text. You know, I'm tempted to say this is both as fantastic and terrifying all at once. 
It is both fantastic and terrifying all at once, and it is this. Our lives produce what others have called ripple effects. Um, the decisions which we take will profoundly affect other people for good or ill, especially our families. And let me read to you. Page 199 in the story, First uh, Kings 15, 3 to 5. And this is an example again of what said otherwise. But he committed, um, I think we're speaking of Rehob- Jeroboam here. He committed all the sins his father had done before him. His heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of his father David. Sorry, we're about Rehoboam now. As the heart of his father David, his forebearer, had been. And listen to this. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord gave the Lord his God gave him, Rehoboam, a lamp in Jerusalem by raising up a son to succeed him and by making Jerusalem strong. For David had done what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not failed to keep any of the Lord's commands all the days of his life, except in the case of Uriah, the Hittite, which we looked at a little while ago. Interesting to me, he didn't mention the sexual sin. He mentioned the despicable murder of Bathsheba's husband. But here David, it's described again. He was right in the eyes of the Lord. He did not fail to keep any of the Lord's commandments. His heart, his passion, his desire was to live fully for God. He made mistakes, yes, but that's who the man was. He worshipped God and God alone. But I want you to notice that phrase, nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord gave Rehoboam a son who would become king of Judah. Here's the point to you today. Because of David's heart for God, generations following him were blessed, even in spite of their sin. Even though they weren't like David, generations were blessed because of the heart of that man. Do you know what the Bible says? That the Lord visits the sin of the parents on the fourth, third and fourth generation. Have you read that? The Lord visits the sin of the parents on the third and the fourth generation. It also says that God blesses uh, the, 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 the children of people who are godly and who love him to the third and fourth generation and beyond. Do you really believe that? you think that's true? I want to read to you Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 to 6. This comes straight out of the Ten Commandments. It says this, for you, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the waters below. So again, we're talking about the incredibly important reality of idolatry. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of their parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands, commandments. What do you think about that? I think we're talking again about something really serious, <laughs> something of incredible significance. Here's the truth I want to suggest, suggest to you. There's so much that I could unpack from this, but I have to, we, we have to recognize the ripple effect that flows from one life to another, to another generation, to the next. So here's the truth. Many of us struggle in our lives, are, are struggling and hurting and broken and engaged in sin because of the sin of our parents or our grandparents or our great-grandparents. We live with an unhealthiness in our hearts, a brokenness within because of how they lived before us and because of the way we learn to live with them. 
Take a minute and think about this. Do you know families where it seems negativity and struggle and brokenness seems just to persist from one generation to the next? I do. It's a sad, sad dynamic, but I, I see it. Take time to think about it, and I think you'll probably come up with some examples. Conversely, do you see some families who are blessed and know the goodness, know goodness in life, and that, that positive experience of blessing seems to go from one generation to the next and to the next and yet still to the next? In a similar way, I can say, yes, I know such families. You see, my friends, this is a truth that becomes a reality in us. You see, our woundedness often is a result of the woundedness of our parents. This, this, this is really what our healing care ministry is about right now. The idea of recognizing, you know, I'm part of a sequence. I've, I've inherited, if you would, I have learned how to live in such a way that, I'm, that, that, that brokenness is being passed on generation and through generation in me. And recognizing the need for me not to sit back as a victim and say, oh, poor me, but it's all my parents' fault, and learning to say, by the grace and by the mercy and by the power of God's Spirit within me, that sequence can be broken. And I can be set free from the woundedness of my parents and their parents and their parents before them. So as people gather together in the healing care ministry now of our church, we just started another session off it with three groups yesterday. God comes, Christ comes by his spirit and he changes hearts and he takes us from brokenness to health and to wholeness and we are made new. That's why also we have invited by Peaceful Waters, a Christian counseling agency into our church and we've made it available to them at no cost to them so that our people and even others can be given good Christian counseling and why we now subsidize counseling for people in our congregation. You know why? Because we all live with brokenness that needs to be broken. doesn't make sense. Woundedness that needs to be addressed and healed and the chain from generation to generation broken that we might be made new. And I want to tell you, my friends, if you find yourself in that sequence, if you see yourself struggling, find a way to move beyond it. Seek healing in whatever fashion you can take hold of it. Deal with it. Because in Christ, you can break free. And let me say to those of you who say, hey, I think I'm part of that family generational sequence where I'm actually deeply blessed because of those who have gone before me. All I can say to you is be incredibly thankful for what you've been given. Thank God for your parents and for your grandparents and for your great-grandparents. So that's, that's a thought that looks backwards. I want us to take a minute and look at, look at it, this teaching also in this way. What legacy will you and I leave to our children and to our grandchildren and listen to our great-grandchildren? What legacy? Spiritually, will we be healthy and vital? Will we know the blessing of God in our lives? Will we show them and teach them and pass on to them the goodness, the ripple effect that comes from a life that is fully given over to God? Because the Lord blesses his people to the thousandth generation of those who love him and are faithful before him. 
You see, this is enough reason in itself for us to identify the gods which we worship or the potential gods that are in our life so that we might reject them and turn away from them, that we might worship only the one true and living God. So I ask you again, what are your idols? I'm not kidding. You can come and listen to me yap Sunday after Sunday if you want, but if you don't take this stuff to heart and deal with it in a direct and meaningful and incredibly um, significant way, it's all for naught. All of us either are worshiping idols right now or we are in a place where we are tempted to worship idols. It's just the human reality. You know, I was thinking uh, in preparation this week, I wonder if IPC is getting tired of me talking about idols. Oh, I think I hit on a, on a nerve there, huh? And I want you to realize I'm talking about it because it keeps coming up in the story. You get that, don't you? Like, it's not just mentioned here and there. It's chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter. And it could be that you're getting tired about hearing about idols as I continue to teach what's in the book, meaning specifically the Bible, as, re as is reflected in the story version. But in response to that, I then thought, well, of course it's possible that people could be getting tired of me talking about idols. But think about this. How tired did God get telling his people over and over and over and over again not to worship them and seeing them ignore him and continuing to worship alternate gods so much so that it only brought disaster and heartache into their lives. How tired did God get and how tired does God get of speaking this truth into the lives of his people and his people not listen? Do you know the idols that exist in your life? Jeroboam was clear. He knew about the golden calf. He made two of them. Didn't care. I don't care what your word says, God. I don't care what Moses said. I don't care. I'm going to do what's good for me and what's going to give me power. Hold on to power that I might reign. See, that's, that's the reality. We want to hold on to power in our lives. We want to do it our way, not God's way. And that walks us right into idolatry. So I want you to take this really seriously. I don't want this to end this morning. I want you to go home and I want, to, I want you to get into the presence of the Lord and I want you to ask him, if you don't know, God, what are the idols in my life? And then abandon them. As the Old Testament good kings, you will see this did, only five out of 38 in both kingdoms, northern and south, were good kings. The rest were evil idol worshipers. I want you to tear them down. I want you to destroy them. I want you to grind them into dust so they're no longer part of your life. Let me, let me turn it around again. Let's look at the positive side of this. Parents, I guess I'm thinking of young parents especially. I'm also thinking of teenagers who are going to become parents. I'm thinking of older parents who are in the grandparent stage, maybe. There's, there's always still time, but I want you to hear this. Can I ask you 
to make the honor of God and the worship of God the absolute priority in your homes. In all that you do, live for him. Obey his word. Be faithful before him. Prioritize Jesus and the, and the cause of Christ. Live your life as an act of worship before the Lord. Because if you can get there by God's grace, you will create ripple effects that will, ha- that will affect your great-grandchildren. And I don't know who among us wouldn't want that. And I want to say it again and just briefly. Do not live like or for the world. John 2, 15. Basically, I won't take time to read it. I'm just going to tell you. It says, you love the world, the love of God is not in you. If you love the world, the love of God is not in you. If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. We are called to love God to prioritize God, to be passionate for God, to live our lives entirely for God, for the coming of his kingdom. Bring the kingdom values into your home. Let your children see your faith. Talk to them about it. Show them what it means to live fully devoted before the Lord, and God will bless you, and he will bless them, and he will bless their children, and he will bless those children after you. I let my conclusion sneak out a minute ago, but 38 kings in Israel and Judah, the northern and southern kingdom, 38 of them over the course of this time period. 33 of them were evil in the eyes of the Lord. They worshiped idols. Five of them were good kings who refused to worship anything or anyone other than God. Here's my parting comment to you. Be like those figure it out live your life for the Lord Jesus love him beyond anything else serve him with your whole heart be fully devoted to him be like King David says when he died he died loving the Lord his God my friends what are you living for what do you love What's the greatest priority in your life? Let it be Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that uh, for all of us here, that we will know the idols of of our lives, that we will know the idols that we will be tempted throughout our lives to worship. Those foreign idols didn't ever go away. They were always there. But God, we pray together that we will be faithful to you, that we will be a people who turns away from foreign gods and that we will worship only you. Lord, we pray that we will be people who will fully devote our hearts to you, that we will fully commit our lives to you, Lord Jesus. And God, our prayer is that the ripple effect of our life Our lives for generations will be goodness and blessing as a result. Lord, I just feel really led today to pray for this church that we will take significant steps forward, every single one of us, into faithfulness before you. Absolute commitment of our lives to Christ, to love him and you, Father, above all else. 
God, create that in us. Be gracious to us by leading us to that place. We might know the incredible blessing of being holy and completely yours. God, this we pray in Christ's name.